Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to the Sight Black Women podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Ruha Benjamin, who is an associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. She's the author of the award-winning book, Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. And she is also the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab, which brings together students, activists, artists, and educators to develop a critical and creative approach to data justice. Ruha is also the author of People's Science, Bodies, and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier, and the editor of Captivating Technology, Race, Technology, and Liberatory Imagination of Everyday Life, among numerous other publications. You can find more information about her and her website, ruhabenjamin.com, and we'll also link that to the podcast description. But without further ado, welcome, Ruha, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's my pleasure to be in conversation with you today, Kristen. You know, I have been really wanting to have you on here for a long time. And even before we entered into this pandemic moment, Mm -hmm. because your work on race and technology and um, the way that race is coded in technology is something that I think is extremely urgent um, and something we should all be paying attention to. And then, of course, we hit the pandemic Mm -hmm. and we all went virtual and technology became the center of all of our lives. And so I really really wanted to start off by talking about your book, Race After Technology, and thinking with you about the ways that race is coded. Mm. You know, in your in your introduction and throughout the book, you talk about how race is coded in subtle and not so subtle ways in our emerging technologies, mm-hmm. and specifically the ways that it's tracked. Um, literally, racial discrimination is embedded into our everyday context. When we apply for jobs, when we go shopping, when we name a child, things that you all mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that. What does it mean that race is coded in emerging technologies? And what are the stakes? Thanks for that. Um, I, sometimes people summarize my work better than I can. So I appreciate that synthesis. Um So one way to think about it is even before we get to hardware and software, what we associate with technology is that we know that through language, language codes racial meaning in all sorts of ways, right? And so we even have this idea of code switching in our popular you know, discourse, moving from one way of speaking and moving through the world and switching to another way, depending on the context. And so first, the thing to understand is that there's all kinds of ways that race is coded before we get to devices and software. And so what race after technology is trying to do is to trace that genealogy, the connection between this much longer history of racial domination and racial coding in our laws, in our educational system, in our healthcare system, and invite the reader to see that actually computer systems are another site of racial coding. And because I think a lot of us still are socialized to think of technology, computer systems as asocial and ahistoric, like as if it's in a bubble, that's not uh, part of other kinds of social interactions and social contexts. And so what my work is trying to do basically is burst that bubble and to show who are the humans behind the screen making decisions? How are their values, their worldviews, their desires, 
being imprinted onto the things that they design, whether we're talking about the decisions they make when creating an algorithm or automated decision system, or even much more simpler kinds of tools like sensory tools. There was an example of a few years ago of two friends that were in this um, this uh, hotel bathroom and they were putting their hands in the soap dispenser, the automated soap dispenser. One was darker skin, one was white, lighter skin, and the soap wouldn't come out for the darker skin friend. And they were kind of giggling uh-huh. and the video went viral. But that's just a very simple way of illustrating that who is designing technology with what kind of starting assumptions, who's behind the scene impacts who ends up being able to use it or not. And so the fact that during the testing and design stage, there wasn't anyone of darker skin to show that that sensor wouldn't work in the way that it was currently designed is telling of a much larger issue in terms of technologies that really have life and death consequences for people. That's a really important example. And it's one that, um, it makes me think about a lot of things, but particularly one of the things that you talk about in your book are the ways that these technologies have become ubiquitous and are so much a part of the everyday that we don't even notice the ways that we're being coded. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I know for me, I never even thought about the fact that we could be coded at a moment where we're using a soap (laughs) dispenser, right? Um, A lot of times we just would, most of us, I know, I I won't even speak for those of us that are listening, right? (laughs) But I'll I'll speak for myself. I probably would have brushed that off (laughs) as the soap dispenser doesn't work very well, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we do when we have like an N of one, when it's just us with the technology. But so what makes that video compelling and kind of hit home the point is that you have an N of two, you have a comparison and you can see it works with one person, but not another. And that opens the door for us to think about why that is, why is it functional and why does it work with some people and not others? That makes me also think about things like facial recognition, Right. Um, which I think is something that has gotten more attention, um, particularly lately when we're talking about the possibilities of law enforcement using facial recognition technology in order to identify potential suspects or do the kind of tracking that they do in order to um, process investigations. Absolutely. And, and so we started talking about soap dispensers, which mm-hmm. feels very innocuous, but there's yeah. a, a much more dangerous um, underside to this. Absolutely. And and exactly the, the, dot, the dots you've connected from something that's kind of funny and, and cosmetic and superficial to the much more consequential um, aspects of this. And so, you know, colleagues of mine, um, Joy Bulamwini and her team at MIT were one of the first a group of black women who a few years ago were the ones who demonstrated um, how most of the major facial recognition systems used by all of the major companies not only have a hard time detecting people with darker skin, individuals with darker skin, but also they um, routinely misgender black women. And so what she did is she put a number of very famous black women's faces through the system, and they were routinely um, misgendered and misrecognized. And so 
and then in response to that, what's interesting is now the first, there was a massive denial on the part of the companies. And then finally, they've come to grips with that, with the, the, how robust her study was. And so now the scrambling to try to diversify the training data and hone the technology, but the reason why a humanistic approach to technology is so important is that even if that technology works perfectly, even if it can identify everyone just who they are and doesn't create like this misgendering and all of the misidentification, even if the technology is perfect, it is very well still likely to perpetuate forms of racial violence in the way that it's implemented. And so that tells us that technological efficacy can't be our endpoint. It can't be what we're striving for. We have to understand technology in its social context. Even the best honed technology, if it's being used by entities, a state that routinely surveils and criminalizes um, Black people, it doesn't matter how good it works. <laughs> and so um, that's why we need people outside of STEM fields to also be engaging it. Um, what's happening in terms of emerging technologies to raise the questions and to push back on it. And it's interesting that just in the last, um, the, the last few weeks of the pandemic, um, most of the major companies have created moratoria um, and stopped their, their, um, their projects or their, sorry, their contracts with um, police uh, departments because finally they've come, they've started to acknowledge the the violence associated with these systems. There's so much to unpack there. I think that you know, as you were talking, I was sitting there and I was really um, reminded of Hortense Spiller's work. Um, Mama's baby, Papa's mm-hmm. baby, and, and thinking about the ways that Black women, the relationship between Black women, um, the history of slavery and ungendering, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, the ways that we as Black women are constantly being dehumanized, not only through the racial dehumanization of disparaging us because we are Black, but also that compounded and intersectional um, gendering aspect of that dehumanization Mm -hmm. that distances us from our identification as female in order to further the process of anti-Black violence, right? Absolutely. I mean, so that's just so profound to me. I mean, the fact that this is something that comes up um, technologically just brings us back to the ways that uh, discrimination is such an insidious and pervasive part of our society. Absolutely. And so for since we're citing Black women, I want to encourage listeners to check out the paper called Gender Shades, which is the paper that really breaks the ground on the interlocking systems of domination when we're talking about computer systems by Joy Bolomwini and colleagues. And also go to YouTube and check out her spoken word poem, and she's riffing off of Sojourner Truth's um, Ain't I a Woman? And she asks, AI, ain't I a woman? And she shows the re- through visual media and the, in- the juxtaposition of her poetry and the actual computer systems, really the profound 
um, intersection of race and gender when it comes to these technologies. And so those are two wonderful um, ways to engage this aspect of um, what I call the new gym code or discriminatory design. That's so important. And obviously what we will do is we will include those links in the description of the podcast and we'll also include them on our social media platforms. I think that one of the things that we want to do is to make sure that people have access to all of the work that black women are doing around this issue, because it it is part of the repertoire of responses that we're having to um, anti-blackness and white supremacy. And I think that we have to engage this scholarship. So I want to encourage everyone who's listening to go out and and look at that article and we'll also post it. Um, One of the things that I also thought about as you were, you were having that conversation or you were talking about this paper and talking about the work that, that you do is this question of policing and policing in particular as a technology. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you know, all of us are talking about policing right now. We're mm-hmm. all, it's at the forefront of our mind in ways that it hasn't been um, in my lifetime and mm-hmm. it hasn't been even in my parents' lifetime. And so policing is, is very much something that we're all concerned with. And, and the fact that organizations like Amazon, if I'm not mistaken, have pulled away from their contracts um, with facial recognition and police departments means that we're moving in a positive direction when it comes to that conversation. But I wanted us, uh, it would be good, I think, to think more deeply about this relationship between policing and technology Absolutely. Um, and the history of that relationship. And could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And what the implications are? Yeah. And so I think, you know, the announcements of some of the big tech companies saying that they're um, ending their contracts or at least putting a hold on their contracts. Um, it, in some ways we can see it as a win because, you know, advocates and scholars have been pushing for that for several years now. Um, and so we also need to understand it as part of a larger black lives matter PR campaign that we've seen with other institutions making announcements about their support and the changes, but we can't sleep on it because, um, they make these announcements, but then what happens behind closed doors and the other ways that policing happens outside of the literal police, we have to continue to be vigilant around that in terms of both our ad- advocacy and scholarship. And so one of the things I'm really encouraging people to keep an eye out and understand is that policing happens well beyond the flesh and blood people who have badges and wear uniforms, that technology Um, emerging technologies, especially in terms of automated systems, surveillance systems are incorporated in almost every area of our lives from banks to schools, to hospitals, to of course, prisons and on and on and, and to housing developments, um, you know, in terms of the, you know, the facial recognition to get in and out. And so while the, we might see a reduction in, um, the more explicit, uh, attachments between technology companies and police departments. They are not necessarily slowing down at all in terms of producing technologies that can be used to to track people and control populations in all of these other areas. And so that's what a focus on the new gym code is meant to train our attention on, is the way that it gets encoded 
um, and is not so obvious and doesn't necessarily meet the eye. And so, you know, when we think about um, what we should be sort of organizing around, it has to be a much more expansive notion of not just defunding the literal police, but actually addressing all of the technologies of policing that are used not just by the state, but by many private companies and organizations. Right now during the pandemic, the, the, one of the companies that's, that's developing contact tracing apps is named Palantir. And if you look up Palantir, you'll find that it's also one, the, the, the company that has been providing technologies um, to, to ICE, to the Immigration Enforcement to, um, of course, police, to the military, and you look at the who's behind this company and kind of what they have been committed to thus far, they are the absolute last company that should be uh, thought of as a public health sort of um, a, a company that should be we should be turning to to ensure the public health, um, because surely these contact tracing apps that are, um, you know, in being developed are um, in, in one way or another going to actually um, uh, engender more rightful distrust on the part of hyper-surveilled and racialized um, communities. And so it's, it's ultimately will backfire in terms of um, moving us towards uh, a world that's not on, not on sheltering in place and that we can actually move around freely. And so that's just one example of things happening behind closed doors that we can often miss when we're only focused on the people throwing tear gas at our loved ones on the streets. Absolutely. I think, you know, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think that one of the things that's been unsettling to me in the conversations that we've all been having about policing are the ways that people are really focused on uniform police officers and not focused on the, the various state entanglements that produce surveillance of black people and through that surveillance, proliferate violence against black people and proliferate black death. And so I think that these private companies, these companies that are um, engaged in surveillance technology are companies that we have to pay attention to. And the pharmaceutical companies are companies that we have to pay attention to. Absolutely. These health companies. Our universities, our universities monitoring, too. Monitoring um, and, and watching what it is that we are doing um, and tracing us is uh, that's something that we have to be really vigilant on. Absolutely. And I think particularly when, when it comes to uh, the repercussions of the pandemic, what we're facing as the country looks to reopen or reopen and then close and then reopen again um, is really trying to grapple with the health surveillance that we all are going to have to be subjected to um, in order to do that. And so we need to think critically about what the implications of this are. I think, you know, there are a lot of different directions that we could take this conversation. Mm -hmm. in, but there's a couple of things that come to mind that I really want to want to think about. And one of the things that you mentioned when we talked about policing was the work that you do and the way that you frame it around um the framing of the new gym code mm -hmm. and, and 
one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is its abolitionist perspectives. In one of your articles, Catching Our Breath, Critical Race, STS, and the Carceral Imagination, you examine, quote unquote, the proliferation and intensification of carceral approaches to governing human life. And this is an approach that you develop out of combining science and technology studies with critical race theory. And it really does reflect an abolitionist frame. And, and I wanted you to talk a little bit more about what it means to actually critique and engage the carceral approaches to governing human life. Mm-hmm. And, and that is about policing, but it's also about something else. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And so, you know, part of what um, energizes me is to look at the root causes of so many of the social problems and interlocking forms of power and domination that we experience rather than only looking at the kind of symptoms of things. And so to get to the root, we have to look both at the practices at the root, like what people do, but also the logics behind it. Like what are are the forms of reason and reasoning that justify and that perpetuate it. And and to do that, we have to take ideas seriously, like the intellectual ideas, the scientific ideas that underlie what we then see materialized in terms of oppressive tools and structures. And so thinking about a carceral imaginary versus a liberatory imaginary is getting us to the heart of what's behind the kinds of manifestations, whether digital or infrastructural, that we see actually building up around us. And so a carceral imaginary is really thinking about how the logics of control, specifically racial control and order, animate so many areas of our lives. And we don't even have to bring in anything fancy in terms of AI or digital tools. We can just look at the ordering of our schools. You know, people have been writing about this. My my sister scholar, Carla Shedd, in terms of the carceral continuum and the unequal city. And we go through, you know, whether we're talking about in the hospitals, my sister scholar, Kiara Bridges, when she talks about how black women are are treated in the healthcare system. Before we even get to any fancy tools, there are technologies of order and control that take the form of very simple like intake forms when someone comes into the hospital or disciplinary protocol in our schools. And so I think we have to understand the relationship between emerging forms of the new Jim Code and, and technologies that oppress to this much more analog, everyday kinds of technologies that exist in all of our institutions to understand how deeply embedded they are so that we can get to the root of the problem to root them out. Because if we only think about the more high-tech versions that we're confronted with now, the impulse is to then tweak those tools to make them so-called less biased or less discriminatory. So the focus becomes, let's just create better tools, but rather we need to create better logics, better imaginations that are actually materializing in these tools. We need to step back and think about why we keep getting these same old things over and over again in different forms. And so someone like me who studies this could easily be enrolled in the project of help make my tool less biased. You know, people come knocking all the time. Help me make my app so it doesn't discriminate. Help me make this so it doesn't, you know, and I could, I could have a whole second job just consulting on making things 
less biased, but that's a cosmetic change. I need to understand why these things continue to, um, you know, harm the pe- the communities and the people I love over and over again and get to the root of it. And that to me is a more abolitionist approach because it's thinking about root causes. And then it's also trying to seed alternatives from the root, from the beginning, rather than just trying to paper over and create a veneer of change over and over again. So one of the things that Black women across this country have are dealing with right now um, is the fact that we're all being called on to do this kind of anti-racist work that are uh, that are wonderful um, white countrymen and countrywomen are just now discovering, right? Um, and and I, when you when you talk about uh, getting called in to make things less racist, I think about the fact that, you know, part of what we all, particularly as Black women, scholars, activists, organizers, artists, change makers, whatever you want to call yourself, part of what all of us are really tasked with is to make sure that we are grounding ourselves in our principles. And the abolitionist principles are principles that require us to really push back and question the desire to reform Mm -hmm. and remake uh, uh, structures that Mm -hmm. are fundamentally racist by design. And so I'm really glad that you bring that up because I think that it's, it's so important and, uh, you know, it's just something that we all have to be vigilant of. And, and especially those of us that are doing work that appeals directly um, to the powers that be right now. And so it's heartening to me to hear you say that. Absolutely. And I think that's also why like um, our work as teachers is, um, you know, it's ground zero really for seeding a much more um, liberatory, revolutionary way of thinking and approaching social life. And so the ideas, again, matter that we are building off of. And so that's one of the reasons that motivated motivated me to create the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab, because I, I, nor you, nor even all of our sister kin can manage all of the demands to address the, you know, the, all of the, the requests coming at us, the interventions. And so I'm motivated to raise up, um, you know, as many young scholar activists as I can, not just in my classes, but through the lab that can, that I can direct people to and be like, I can't do it, but look at these 10 people who can do it (laughs) because they are also trained up in critical data tools and, and, you know, in a much more profound questioning of, technology and science. And so um, I think our work as teachers is also part of, of um, the larger world building that we do, you know, outside of the classroom as well. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought up the Ida B. Wells Justice Data Lab, because I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, You know, your description of the lab reads that the Just Data Lab brings together students, educators, activists, and artists to develop a critical and creative approach to data conception, production, and circulation. You go on to say, our aim is to rethink and retool data for justice. So I want to ask you, what does it mean to rethink and retool data for justice? What does that look like? 
So it has different components. One is that we, we have a much more expansive understanding of what constitutes data. It's not just um, quantitative. It's not just statistics. But there are all kinds of forms of data that we can begin to envelop in our idea of, um, of knowledge production. So that's one thing. The other is to understand that the questions that we ask of data um, that questioning, the, the starting point of any research, is a, a profound site of power because who gets to pose the question through what frameworks directed in what, what a direction of whether up at those who wield power or the, down towards those who are affected by systems of power, that questioning is a, a site of struggle. And right now, most of the the digital tools that we take for granted in our everyday lives, the questions or the things that those tools are supposed to solve were, were first asked or posited by a very small sliver of humanity. So not many people got to be part of that starting conversation. And so a just data approach requires that we, in the case of my lab, partner with community organizations to ask questions that are most meaningful to them rather than come to, to come to communities with our questions and then a kind of extract data from them and extract knowledge from them. And so it's trying to work against that kind of extractive model and to partner with communities to build tools that are useful for advocacy and education in the world, not just for publication, not just to circulate and be cited by other academics. And so it's a much more applied orientation to knowledge production in the, in the spirit of Du Bois's Atlanta School, where it was thinking, how do we use the resources of the university to be most beneficial to our communities, right? And so, for example, um, this summer, we're building in the lab a pandemic portal and we have 10 teams that are focused on different aspects of racism, inequity, and COVID. All of them in some ways are also grappling with the uprisings against police violence. We have a team, for example, focused on work, one on education, one on housing, one on tests and treatments. And so there's 10 different um, teams. And then they're each partnering with a community organization to develop something that will be useful. Some of those things that they're developing are would be more traditional in terms of a digital tool, like some kind of data visualization that's useful to the organization or a timeline, interactive timeline. But some of them are also kind of like more old school analog, like playbooks and zines, right? And so that's what I mean by expansive. It's like data and, and data tools are not just um, things that are have algorithms behind them and are coded on our screens, but they're also things that we can hand to our neighbor or use to facilitate a group workshop on housing justice. And so these are the, the, the range of things that are being developed as part of the pandemic portal in which students are collaborating with um, uh, advocates, but also artists. So today, right after this, our conversation where um, the lab is hosting um, a zine and playbook making workshop with an artist who is going to um, help teach the teams that are doing that kind of thing how to create something that's a kind of mixed, um, a mixed uh, genre, digital and analog kind of tool that they can use um, as their end product. And so 
um, those are the kind of things we're working on and we're just getting started. So if you're listening and you're a community organization or you're an artist or educator who wants to partner, please check out um, the website, thejustdatalab.com and would be happy to talk. That's so important. And I'm glad that you mentioned the website and mentioned the fact that people can get involved because I think people are really looking for that kind of resource right now. And I know that we're coming towards the end of our time, but I wanted to close with a couple of questions um, that kind of are forward facing. And one of them comes out of my reflections on the Just Data Lab. And I, I really appreciate the pandemic portal. It is a fascinating interface to be able to think about what's happening right now and visually synthesize it. And so I, I very much appreciate it. And one of the things that I started to think about when I was looking at the pandemic portal is the ways that this moment is both devastating and beautiful to mm. paraphrase James Baldwin. Mm. And so I wanted to ask you, what about the virtual realities of the COVID-19 pandemic mm. most frighten you? And what do you find most hopeful? Mm. Ooh, that's a million dollar question. So in terms of um, the most frightening, um, I think it's an extension of what um, worries me more generally. And that is the way that solutions to problems we face um, are, are people capitalize and create solutions that actually re-entrench problems. So right now, for example, whether we're talking about um, at the education system, like the fact that we have to go remote so quickly. There's companies that are dropping into so many cities and towns offering various kinds of learning platforms that um, are likely going to exacerbate inequalities and create more mental health instability and anxiety. And so the people that have the resources to, to create solutions at scale often are not doing so with the with the experiences and insights of those who routinely experience the underside of modernity, the underside of technologies at, at, at behind the screen. And so it's really that kind of narrow solutionism that continues to frighten me. And that during a pandemic where everything is up for grabs, everything is um, shifting, it just creates more opportunities for, for those organizations and those powerful actors to step into the void and fill it with things that actually do more harm than good. In terms of what makes me hopeful is that underneath all of that, there are everyday ways that individuals, communities, neighbors are filling the voids in their life, regardless of how those big entities are operating. And so I'm thinking about the hundreds or thousands now of mutual aid groups and networks, many of which already existed, many of which are now coming to the light of day, people are realizing they existed. And then many more that are being formed to, you know, whether it's deliver groceries or childcare or, um, you know, just do all kinds of forms of support for neighbors and, and communities. And so it's that kind of bottom up solidarity that is very different from this tech solutionism and also very different from the kind of philanthropic charity model of support. And so it just is very heartening to see people reaching out and, and being um, the kind of neighbors and comrades and, you know, community members that this, this um, it's not an opportunity, but this necessity of the pandemic has created. 
Thank you so much for that. You know, here at Sight Black Women, we try to close uh, our podcast with the same question to everyone. Um, and I'm reminded that, you know, the first time I actually met you and I met you from a distance was at our Sight Black Women panel at the American Sociological Association meetings back in 2019. And so I want to bring it full circle and close with a question um, about who the black, who are the black women that inspire your work mm. you cite. And if you could recommend one black woman author to all of our readers, who would it be and why? Mm. Well, you know, I am um, first and foremost, a student of Octavia E. Butler. And so I am, I'm sure that most of your listeners have probably read her work. Um, one of the things that, that you, even if you're a fan or have read her science fiction, I would encourage everyone to go online and type Octavia E. Butler notebooks and then go onto an uh, image search and read the notes that she wrote to herself in her margins and in the back of her notebooks. And so when you do so, you'll realize that her profound world building in her novels and her fiction they have a corollary in her own life. That means the world building she did in terms of her own biography, um, in terms of her vision for her life, as, as she says, I will be a best-selling author, so be it, see to it. And so she writes in very specific detail all of the things she wants to accomplish, not only for herself, but also the things that she wants to do for young Black youth. She says she wants to send them to writer's workshops. She wants to send them to college. And so it's a kind of very expansive world building that has to do with our own lives. And so, as I say, I'm a student of Butler and I, I cite her literally in terms of my, my writing. I'm working on a, a book right now where I'm, I'm thinking about these mutual aid networks that I just mentioned as a site of world building. But I also um, think that we cite one another, not just literally in terms of what we put in the parentheticals or in the back of our articles or books, but we cite one another in terms of how we live and how we try to model the, the examples of one another. And so I'm trying to, to model and trying to learn from Butler's um, work, both her personal and her professional work in the everyday ways that I approach my own. And so that's, that's the person that I would, um, would shine a light on and also encourage others to learn more about that, that um, personal side of her citational practice. Well, I love that choice. And thank you so much. I think it's, you know, I love Octavia Butler. And so thinking about her notebooks is something that you're right, everybody should do. And the fact that you're engaging with her work, not only citing it in the ways that you are thinking about the world, but also citing it in the way that you just mentioned, mm -hmm. in the way that you approach your research and, and community engagement, engaging with students, um, reaching out to young people. In all of those ways, you are very much in her legacy. Thank and so I, I, yeah, I think that, and I mean that, I don't, I'm not just saying that because we're on the podcast. I, I really do mean that. There's a way that you are a scholar that um, truly is holistic Thank and you. truly engages not only in the political impetus of black studies that, that brings our freedom and our liberation directly in line with our scholarship, but also that the, the ways that that means a, an investment in community and community engagement. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your time today. 
My pleasure. My pleasure. We're busy. And so whenever you can take a moment out to speak and talk with us, we just appreciate it. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we before we end? No, I feel just full and grateful and I'm cheering on this podcast and I'm just very honored to be um, be part of it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Site Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.siteblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Site Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Mm-hmm.